Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. So our reading this morning is taken from Revelation 21, verses 9 to the end. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates will ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andy. Now, I did have a a sermon prepared on this very text, but as some of you will know, last night, my beloved Manchester City won the Champions League final and the treble, 
That's absolutely right, Tony. So I have a 115-point sermon this morning on what we can learn from that. No, I don't really. I don't really. Shall we pray? Oh, Father God, thank you so much for your presence with us. Thank you that your presence makes all the difference. Thank you that in our midst you are building a city that hosts your presence. And you're using us in building it. Teach us today what it means to carry your presence, as Dr. Rajesh has testified, so that we might see your glory in our world. Amen. Amen. Two stories uh, really quickly from this weekend. Firstly, Friday evening, I was at Plumtree Cricket Club, which is where my son Joseph uh, does cricket. He's getting into the game and enjoys uh, wearing just more pads uh, than any 10-year-old would require for a cricket game when people are bowling at him about 22 miles per hour. Anyway, there we were at Plumtree, and I got into a conversation with one of the coaches, who I'll call Bob, uh, in case the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon him and he watches our live stream this morning, I wouldn't want to speak, to him without, or speak about him without permission. And he was telling me, as he's told me before, of the pain he's been experiencing in his hip, and in fact, in different joints of his pain of arthritis, I have to say, in his case, really early onset arthritis, probably as a manifestation of his kind of cr cricket career, he was uh, quite a useful cricketer, I am told. And I sensed, I heard the nudge. Some of you know the nudge. It's that irritating thought that fills your mind. And it goes something like this. You could pray for him. <laughs> you heard it before? Oh, dear. Now, if you're a professional Christian like me, uh, uh, it's, it's no easier to squash it. Oh, and I, I began to speak to the voice. I began to say things like, I can't pray for him here. This is a cricket club. We don't do, we do drinking beer here. Upturn pints on our heads once we've downed them. We don't do praying for healing here. I can't. He's teaching the boys and girls the cricket. I can't do the praying. I'll pray for him another time. I'll pray about whether I should pray for him. <laughs> and in the end, my disobedience, my fear won out. I didn't pray for him. I resolve to pray about whether I should pray for him and ask you to pray for me also, for Bob. And then on Saturday morning, the next morning, Amy and I went for a run. We walk together twice a week. We also try and run together uh, once or twice a week. Uh, by the way, if you are looking for marriage advice, the best thing we have ever done for our marriage is to walk regularly together and just have conversations. It's really simple, but if you're looking for marriage advice, that's all I got. That's the only thing I've got, but there it is. Such as it is, it's yours. And uh, we went for a short run together, and then I thought, you know, I'm not quite exhausted yet, so I'll carry on. And I carried on, and I got to the top of the hill on which our, our house is, 
and which our children's school is, and I arrived at the top, completely exhausted, right where, where Anders and Magda live, actually. And I saw a man with a bicycle. I hadn't seen him before. He didn't look like he was a local, and he looked a little bit, a tiny bit kind of lost and a bit uncertain, and I just clocked it. And then I heard the voice. Oh, the voice again, the voice. And I did again. <laughs> I went through the justifications. Oh, I can't pray for him. And, and I was, this one was a bit easier because I wasn't standing still. I was ambulatory. I was moving and so I ran on and reasoned with myself. And then, of course, he caught up with me on his bike. And he actually passed me and so I breathed a, heart, a sigh of relief as well as the sigh of exhaustion. And I got around the corner past St. Paul's Boundary Road and there he was sitting on a bench and I heard the voice again. And I got about 15 or 20 paces past him, and I stopped in my tracks, disobedient and chastened. And I went back. I was like, Lord, what should I say? The only thing I could think was a psalm that I've been sitting in. Uh, For a while, Psalm 139 says, oh, Lord, you've searched me. And you know me. That's all that came to my mind. So I just said, look, this is going to sound so weird. I'm a Christian. Believe it or not, I'm actually a professional. <laughs> I'm a vicar. And I believe that God speaks. And I, I don't know if this is going to make any sense to you. But there are some songs, there are some poems in the Bible. They're called the Psalms. I'm not sure you've ever. And in fact, I've got his name first. And then I, I said, I think that's a Yorkshire accent, isn't it? I'm from Yorkshire. So he said, yeah, is that West Yorkshire? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did that whole thing. And then I did my bit. And I said, look, I, there's a song in the Bible. And it begins with these words, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. Now, I don't know you, but I didn't want you to go through today without, not, without hearing that there is somebody who knows you and who loves you just as you are. And then I ran away. <laughs> <laughs> and here's what I should have done. This is my, you know, this is my own follow-up for next time. What I, what I wish I'd said after that was, look, does that resonate with you? And can I pray for you? But I'm really only a beginner in this. Even after all these years, I'm just making a beginning. What, what is it that causes me to struggle so much? I think it's that I don't understand or trust fully that I carry the presence. That I carry the, the living presence of God with me wherever I go. I don't get that. I don't trust it. I know it theologically. I, I'm got, about, to, about to preach a sermon to you about it. I'm hoping to persuade you and convince you. I've probably undermined everything by showing you how weak my understanding actually is. But I long to be part of a people who understand the presence, and what it means to carry the presence. You see, the story of Scripture is the story of God's presence. I'm going to teach you the whole Bible story now, hopefully in only a couple of minutes. It begins in a garden, a garden filled with the presence in, in Genesis 2. As God spoke, speaks in Genesis 1, order over chaos, he fills the garden with his presence. It says that Adam and Eve walked with God, or he walks with them in the cool of the day. This is a picture of presence. God himself walking. 
Is this a pre-existent Christ? I don't know. Leave it to the theologians. But here God and people are present to one another. And God gives humankind, Adam and Eve, a commission. And the commission is be fruitful and multiply. The commission is this. Go and extend the boundaries of this presence place, which I have called Eden. That word means delight. Go and extend the boundaries of the presence place so that the presence place encompasses every other place. Do for the world what I've done in this garden. Extend the boundaries of order, of peace, of joy, and of delight. Make the whole earth a place of my presence. How are you going to do that? By carrying my presence, by living with me, by obeying me. Not doing this autonomously, self-governancingly, <laughs> not a word, but doing it with me, walking with me. And as we walk together, so we will see the earth becoming a place of my presence. That's the story of Scripture. You know that there was a rebellion. The rebellion was essentially a refusal to do that job. Maybe the rebellion in Eden looked a little bit like my own rebellion in Plumtree. Oh, we couldn't possibly do that. It's too difficult. We need a bit more knowledge. There's a tree over there. And if we taste the fruit of that tree, then we'll be able to do it. But not just this way. It's too easy. It's too difficult. So there's a rebellion. And as a consequence, they're thrown out of the garden. Their own refusal means that they lose this place of presence and this intimacy. And an angel guards the gates of the garden. Remember that image. It will become relevant later on. And humankind are cast away from the presence. And in one sense, paradise is lost, but hope for the earth becoming a presence place is also lost. What is God to do? He is in, I presume, a quandary. I imagine there are not many problems over which God is vexed, being of ultimate and infinite intelligence. And yet, he comes up with what, even for God, I believe is an extremely novel and creative solution. I am going to make myself present in a new way. I'm going to risk doing the very thing that failed with Adam and Eve. I'm going to do it through a people. He chooses a man, Abraham, and says, I'm going to make a nation of you, Abraham. And you, Israel, becomes the name of the nation. You'll be my presence people in the world. And then he picks and makes that people, that people group, into a nation through Moses. He saves them. He gives them a story of his presence. He shows up to them in the Exodus and grasps them from the place of anti-presence, which is Egypt, takes them into the place of promise, the promised land, and he gives them the law. Now, many of you have been conditioned to think of the law as a negative thing. You've got to understand this. The law is a gift. It told the people of God how to walk in the presence. But the point was, they were unable to live it. Because whether it's one command or hundreds of commands, it's impossible for humans who are by nature rebellious to do that. God had to find a way to write the law on human hearts. We're going to come back to that. That's Jeremiah 31. He rebuilds a people of presence. He gives them the law, codifies that. He puts in the middle of the people a tabernacle and then a temple. And in the heart of the temple is a holy of holies, a cube, a box laden with gold. And in that place, the very glory of God is present. 
an indication to the people, should they forget, your, my presence goes with you, always. You are the people of the presence. Now, of course, we know that the, the nation does what Adam and Eve did. They rebelled. They moved away from the presence. And so they lose the presence. This is this moment in Ezekiel where God's presence leaves the temple. It is the low point of Israel's history. And yet the prophets testify there's coming a day when the presence will return to the people of God. I haven't lost you yet. Where the law will be written on the hearts of God's people again. And when the spirit and the spirit will be poured out. And in Habakkuk, there is a promise which goes a little bit like this. I'm just cutting a bit, quite a bit of stuff out here. It says there's coming a day, Habakkuk 2.14. We have it on a slide if we can find those. It says that for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory. That word glory is a shorthand for presence. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord is the waters cover the sea. This is a new creation moment. Waters and sea should make you think of Genesis. And here we have the glory of God hovering over again. I'm tired. How full with the not how how full, how much do the waters cover the sea? Totally. The earth is going to be filled with the glory in a total way. And at Pentecost, there's an inbreaking of God's presence in a new way. It is fresh, it is different, it is new. It is what the whole Old Testament was pointing towards. And the people of God become a presence people in a new way. It's no longer the particular few, the special leaders. It's every person who calls on the name of the Lord is both saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church of Christ is born and the people of God become presence People, as we have been seeing, the Bible ends with a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Better still, it's actually a renewed heaven. There are two words in Greek meaning new. One is new as in brand new. One is as neos. One is kainos, meaning renewed. This new heaven and new earth is a renewed heaven, a renewed earth. Everything is being made new again. How? God is doing it by pouring out his presence and at the heart of the vision of a renewed heaven and earth. I hope I haven't lost you. Wave at me if you're alive. Some of you are alive, praise God. It must be. It must be a new Pentecost. At the heart of this vision of renewal is a presence-soaked city. It's good stuff, isn't it? I'm loving it. I love it. Revelation, the whole book, if you've missed every other sermon, we've, been, we've done 94 sermons at current counting. That's not actually true. That's a slight exaggeration. It has felt that way, I think, for some. Revelation is a tale of two cities. There is Babylon, and now, late in the game, we have seen a new Jerusalem. More glorious even than Istanbul on a Champions League night. The New Jerusalem. And very quickly, I'm going to do a compare and contrast exercise. Babylon. Sorry, Jerusalem. A bride, we see this in the text, a bride uh, married to the Lamb. In contrast with, uh, sorry, Jerusalem, a bride married to the Lamb. In contrast with Babylon, the harlot committing adultery with the nations. So this, this New Jerusalem is married to the Lamb. Marriage is a picture 
of God's relationship with his creation. Again, I don't have time for this, but in Genesis, we have uh, a series of pairs. We have heaven and earth. We have Adam and Eve, God and creation. These opposites, these pairs, they're not equal opposites in the case of God and creation, but they are a picture of distinction. But God wants to marry himself to creation. That's what the new heaven and the new earth are about, and it's happening in this new city. It doesn't happen in Babylon. Babylon's the opposite. You have disobedience to the will of the Lamb. Babylon is like Eden post-fall. Secondly, we have uh, this new creation. This new Jerusalem is a great high mountain. Now, if you've read Isaiah 2, can we have that on the screen so I don't have to open my Bible? It says this. Next slide. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. All nations will stream to it. So we have a prophetic promise that God will pour out his spirit. There'll be a new Jerusalem. And it will be represented by the mountain of the Lord being exalted. Here, when John is using this vision, he's calling on Isaiah. This is what it'd be like. New heavens, new earth. This is what Jerusalem is like. And it is in contrast to Babel. Remember Genesis 11, a tower reaching to the heavens. No, this time we have a mountain. A mountain. A mountain, not a tower. Thirdly, uh, it comes out of the heavens, Jerusalem does. It is the opposite of Genesis 11 again. I'm just going to skate over all this. I know it's a lot, but we have to uh, just set this in context. A city coming down out of the heavens, not a tower being built up to the heavens from the earth. In other words, this is a gift of grace. The new heavens and the new earth are God's gift. You know, human ingenuity, smarts, intellect, even iPhones, AI, about which I am rightly and justifiably terrified, and if you're not, you should be. They're just Babel microwaved. The new heavens and the new earth is not technological progress, it's not human ingenuity, it's a gift from God. Fourthly, this new heavens and the new earth, this new Jerusalem is life by God's glory. There's no need for any light. We don't need the lights on, no electricity, no EDF, charging you hundreds of pounds every month to have your heating. How can we store the heat in this room for when we need it? We could share it out next winter. Somebody find a way to do that, please. You boffins in the room, engineers... Get busy in your spare time. If Dr. Rajesh can plant 600 churches in his off time, you can make a heat storer that releases it to each of our homes. (laughs) And if you're part of a group, you can have it. Oh, dear. Life by God's glory, not life darkened by sin, as in Babylon. Fifthly, safety and security. Uh, The image here is walls reaching up. From the earth, these walls are thick and they are high. Uh, Somebody, Ian Paul, a theologian in this diocese, talks about this being holiness on a cosmic scale. Walls in the ancient world guarded a city and the point was within the walls you were safe. The new Jerusalem has safety and security. God's presence is a place of safety and security for his people. Babylon is unsafe because Satan is prowling. 
But the new Jerusalem is safe, and that's why there's no more crying, no more weeping. There is no more sickness and death. There is only God's glory. Finally, and I am coming into land, it is a place of his presence. The angel, the angel has a measuring rod, verse 15, of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. A measuring rod of gold. In other words, what's about to happen is special. It requires special instruments. Only the best will do. And the angel measures. Now remember, everything in Revelation is symbolic. It indicates something. When we get to the new heavens and the new earth, don't go looking for the city that is exactly these dimensions. That would be to take this to literally as many have done. But this is no a square of epic scale. In fact, it is not a square. The scale is significant. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, and there is a third dimension, by 1,500 miles. It is not a square. It is a cube. It is a cube laden with gold. What did I tell you earlier on about a cube? The Holy of Holies is a cube. This is a perfect cube. It is golden, and it is, rather than being... A cubit or so, by a cubit, by a cubit. It is 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. This is God's presence on epic scale. Now, the holy of holies encompasses the entire new creation. And this is why when John goes looking for a temple, he can find none. There is no temple. The whole thing is a temple. The whole thing is a place of the presence. The new creation, the new Jerusalem, is the restoration of the presence. It's the fulfillment of the whole biblical story. What is earth's greatest problem fundamentally about? What is the church's greatest problem fundamentally about? Is it toxic leadership? Is that the greatest problem? I would argue no. It, is it inequality in and of itself? Uh, social or racial or sexual or whatever else? No, I would argue not. Are the world's greatest problems fundamentally political? I would argue not. We could go on. Are the economic, financial, commercial? Uh, I think the world's greatest problems, out of which all these, all these other problems emerge, the world's greatest problem is a presence problem. We do not have on the earth the presence in the way that we need to see the presence. In the new Jerusalem, there will be a superabundance of the presence of God. The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's solution to the problem of a lack of his presence, which, which manifests itself in our world in all these different ways, in war, in family breakdown, in violence, Domestic or international is to pour out his presence. It is, to go back to, Gen uh, to Revelation 21, it is a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride. Now, those of you who've read scripture before, you know that the bride is an image of the church. And here's where I want to land this morning. Yes, we have a new city. Yes, the promise is of a renewed place. 
God is now building a place, a Jerusalem, where every one of us will be safe within its walls, where every victim will be made safe, where every injustice will be made right, where every wrong will be judged and corrected. And our hearts are longing for that day, the longing in your heart that you satisfy with every other thing is actually a longing for that day. And there will come a day when that place is available. You and I will, we will walk on the streets that are golden. But the bride is not just a city, the bride is a people. The people of God. We are the bride. You, what? Little old me? Plum tree me? Sweaty, exhausted, running man, me? No, not me. Surely not me. Surely not you. And then Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Clay, broken pots, disobedient pots, cracked pots, unable to carry the glory pots. But the fact that the treasure's in the clay means that the only one who gets the glory when the treasure is poured through the cracks in the clay is the one who puts the glory in the clay, not the jars of clay. We have to trust in the treasure. Stop thinking about the jars. Of course the jars aren't worthy of the clay. That's the whole point. That's why it's grace. But the fact is, the jars have been made to carry the treasure. And it's only when we realize that that we'll be able to share the treasure. And the world will taste and see the treasure. And the treasure will begin to spill out and change the world and drive back evil and drive back darkness and sickness. Jesus says you are a light set on a hill you're not to be hidden Paul says you're a temple of the Holy Spirit and the word that he uses means the holy of holies. You're the, you're the place of God's presence. And I know it doesn't feel like it. And I know the way we behave often doesn't merit it. But we have a choice. And the choice is simply this, and it's terrifying. The choice is do we trust it or not? Listen to this. The angels who guard the walls don't get to choose that, but we do. If only we knew what we carried. You know, Steve Richardson, some of you know him as Steve the First, because he arrived before Steve the Second, uh, is, a, is a man who is in our midst, he's going to be speaking to us in a couple of weeks uh, on a Sunday. He's from Portland, in, which is in Oregon. You may not have heard of Oregon. It's the United States. You know our younger brother, 
as a nation, you know, that kind of small place. Yeah, yeah, that one. Our beloved cousin. And uh, Steve's been praying for this church for a little while and really praying for us. And he saw an image of punch being poured out. The Father just filling people with punch. I'm just going to read from an email he sent to me sometime. I think we have it on the screen. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. He said, here's what I understand. You can't read that. It's too small. I'm going to read it to you. Here's what I understand about this image. The liquid that I'm calling punch is work. As in, my food is to do my Father's work. I'm sure about that. The cups are the people of the church. But it might be the children of the church. God plays himself. There was some prayer about the church being a kind of foundry for these cups. But if so, it's an unconventional foundry. The way the paper cups become hydro flasks is through doing what little work they can handle, not through preparation. We've got this the wrong way around in the church, particularly in the Western church. We've said, come, listen to us. We know what we're doing. By the way, we don't. Listen to us. We'll tell you what to do. And when you've been fed with enough information, you'll go and do things. Only you don't. And when I was sat where you're sat, neither did I. We've got to completely change the mindset. It's not just in case, it's just in time. Be fed a little bit. Go and use it that week. Go and share a little bit. The work, you know, you can plant 600 churches on, on the little morsels of bread I've given you this morning. I say that not to critique anyone else. I hope you hear that. I am chief of sinners in this respect. The point is we get the training by doing the work. And I think God is calling his church again simply to be willing to do the work. He says at the end of the email, it won't happen in the usual ways. There was something about do the work to get the training and do the work to get the resources and not the usual process of getting training to do the work. Would you stand with me if you're able? 